our presence mattered to folks, that that moral authority and that commitment to wade into a space where people are angry and hurt and confused mattered, that the church mattered. Hello, and welcome back to the Christian Civics Podcast, where we explore how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. And we have a tough one this week. A couple weeks ago, I spoke with Pastor Seth Wispelway. Seth has done faith outreach work with some big organizations. The One Campaign, which works to end the spread of AIDS and other preventable diseases in Africa, and with International Justice Mission, a Christian nonprofit that rescues victims of human trafficking. Seth is from Charlottesville, Virginia, and over the last few months, he's been working with pastors and other ministry leaders there who want to protest the white nationalist and neo-Nazi rallies that have sprung up in the town this year. Specifically, he's been working with Congregate Charlottesville, making sure that clergy know how to conduct themselves effectively and safely in dangerous situations. I got in touch with Seth because I was interested in hearing from someone who was actually part of the crowd on August 12th. That's when a demonstrator who was part of the white supremacist neo-Nazi rally that called itself Unite the Right ended up driving a car into a crowd of protesters. I wanted to hear about what people who were part of the protest were trying to say or do, and what that experience was like for them. Seth and I had a long conversation. This is another one that we had to edit for time pretty significantly. Most of what we cut was about the long build-up to last month's controversial rally, including Charlottesville's long debate about public monuments, and the smaller white supremacist rallies that took place in the months leading up to the one we all actually know about and heard about. We're going to jump into the conversation right as Pastor Whispelway begins describing the actual events of August 11th and 12th. Once we get through him narrating those events, we're going to cover a bunch of smaller topics pretty quickly, including white guilt, what it means for pastors to wear robes, and how his lifetime in the church has shaped the way he thinks about politics and protests. But before we get to it, there are a few terms he uses that I want to make sure we understand and clarify. First, you'll hear him say Care Bear a few times. That's a nickname he and the other pastors he works with use for anyone who might not be at the front lines of a protest, but who are making themselves available to provide pastoral care and support to people who are hurt or in shock. Next, white supremacy and white nationalism. These are big terms, and we could dedicate entire episodes of this podcast just to digging into what they mean, how they work as ideas and systems, and what the gospel story means for how we react to them. But for the purposes of this conversation, it'll help us to at least have brief, broad definitions. White supremacy is a range of opinions and dispositions that prioritize the culture, comfort, or well-being 
of people whose ancestors mostly lived in Western Europe over the last thousand years or so. White nationalism is an ideology that believes that our formal laws should be expressly, openly written to benefit white people, and that our government should offer white people greater freedom, privileges, protections, and considerations than non-white people. Christians who believe the Bible when it says that we are part of a kingdom where every tribe and tongue will willingly give up their crowns, give up their greatest glories, and worship a new king alongside one another, can find white supremacy particularly troubling. And when those are also Christians who live in a representative democracy and believe that God intends them to be custodians of and participants in the communities he places them in, a lot of them tend to find white nationalism to be an especially distasteful approach to law and government. Lastly, you'll hear Pastor Whispleway say, hold space, a lot. If that's not a familiar phrase to you, it basically just means filling up a particular area with people so that other people can't fill it up themselves. In this case, he's talking about people who are dedicated to nonviolence, filling up an area so that people who might have violent intentions couldn't go in and start trouble. If you've ever hovered around a table in a crowded restaurant so that no one else could come in and take the table before you sit down, you have a pretty good idea of what he means when he says holding space. All right, now that we have those terms clarified, let's dive into the conversation with Seth. I'll be back for some quick thoughts after the conversation, then we'll go to Pastor Charlie Drew to lead us in prayer. So uh, the, the story and facts on the ground really start on August 11th when the white supremacists come into town for the Unite the Right rally, had a torch-lit march uh, through the University of Virginia grounds, ending around a statue of Thomas Jefferson, where uh, a small group of brave UVA students uh, who we didn't know were going to be out there were trying to counter-demonstrate with chants of, of love and protest and justice simultaneously almost right across the street congregate charlottesville was holding a mass interfaith prayer meeting in the spirit of the civil rights movement with different clergy and faith leaders who had come from all around the country and as well as a lot of community members we had about 675 people in there who were getting prayed up worshiping getting ready for the day ahead and all the different roles we might take on Um, And there are live streams, videos available of that service. Towards the end of that service is when we heard that the torchlit rally led by the white supremacists was coming nearby and a shelter in place order was put on. The church was put on lockdown and we worked to evacuate people out the side without really knowing the extent of violence that was about to take place around that statue. Um, But, you know, that was one of in that service, just a mountaintop moment. Uh, the feeling was electric. I don't know that an Episcopal church has ever had its windows rattling with so much singing and clapping and uh, worship and prayer, and but also really prophetic calls to 
deal with America's original sin in ways that fully uh, transform our country and uh, that haven't been fully engaged before. So that was what was happening Friday night. And then some late night consultations and plans as in, as different Intel and situations came to light uh, for Saturday. You know, we, we knew after our weeks of theological grounding and nonviolent training and building of infrastructure, whether people were going to do legal help or medic help or care bear help uh, or offer safe space in a nearby church help or do direct nonviolent uh, encounter and witness at the rally, which is what I ended up doing on the front lines. So Saturday morning, we had a sunrise service. Uh, then those who wanted to go be part of the sanctuary space and the care bear space and a different peaceful march uh, went and did that. And those of us who were willing and prepared to be on the front lines all day stayed behind, garnering the the latest intel about what the situation was at the park. This is about 7.30 or 8 in the morning, August 12th. And then about 50 of us marched silently from First Baptist Church um, the African-American congregation to Emancipation Park and held space on the front line right there in front of a heavily armed militia. Um, and then shortly after that, different battalions of white supremacists come into the rally and helmets and shields and bats and flags uh, started coming by. We sang, we prayed, we kneeled, uh, always being mindful of the space around us, uh, Every kind of hateful slur was yelled at us. You know, you would think it would be predominantly around Muslims or immigrants or black and brown people. The majority of slurs that were thrown at the clergy were homophobic and anti-Semitic, which I think bears out across most of the day. The majority of the slurs thrown at the clergy were homophobic and anti-Semitic. I mean, to be clear, there, there were anti-Muslim, anti-refugee, anti-immigrant, anti-black statements made consistently throughout the day and and violence of that nature as well. Um, But I think it's fascinating, you know, neo-Nazism and Nazism is the most prominent anti-Semitic ideology out there online. Sure, you'll see from these same bloggers, it's more of these long treatises on immigrants and black and brown people, quote unquote, taking over the country or this and that. Um, but when it comes to a human to human encounter, I think it gets at a more visceral thing for those who harbor a lot of uh, hate and insecurity inside them. Huh. Sorry for the interruption, but that's, no, that's right. fascinating. The dichotomy between the language online that people were using ahead of the rally, uh, talking about ethnicity, immigration status, et cetera. And then when they actually come face to face with people confronting them, they resort to to some degree, almost playground insults. And that gets at a larger issue about how essentially this was all a, a free for all. There was law enforcement was standing on the sidelines through all of this. And that is going to be figured out why and how that, came to pass let me uh, walk through the rest of the day so please as a few hours went by and battalions of these alt-right white supremacist factions 
started to fill up the park with an uh, with a 12 o'clock start time for the rally um shortly thereafter different groups of anti-fascist groups black lives matter groups also started populating the street behind us and it was then that it dawned on us wow we clergy who thought we might be willing to risk arrest sort of non-violently um holding space to block the park, but also, to be honest, to, to mitigate the violence we knew what was going to happen, you know, in our own example, no one was getting arrested. We realized if we hold space to try to block the park, it's going to be a physical violent um, violence. We were risking violence done against us, and that's what happened. So we first tried to hold space on one of the stairways, again, before we knew uh, a potentially violent encounter might happen when the white supremacists attack the anti-fascist groups. Um, and well, so there were no, of, there were no arrests made against aggressors. No, there were like no arrests made period. Um, okay. there are now warrants out. One of the prominent neo-Nazis, Chris Cantwell just turned himself in on felony charges. Um, I'm hopeful a, a young black man was beaten. His skull was cracked open in a parking garage that was caught on a uh, photograph. I don't know about video. And so people are trying to track those folks down, but day of, um, people were punched directly in the face in front of police officers and nothing was done. People, uh, a woman from my church was, um, evidence of it. She went up to a police officer. She was there, uh, committed to nonviolence as well. And, nothing was done. So that's obviously a large part of the conversation that's out there. So we, we took the steps and a group of neo-Nazis with three foot wooden shields. I was on the corner of that thinking they might just push around us. Um, or like, you know, that was to kind of say in our witness, um, God is not okay with this violent ideology. They didn't blink an eye at pushing right through fully cloaked, uh, fully garbed clergy. Um, and so our line broke we regrouped and me and some of the others who were the leaders of action stood in the middle. And that's when the largest group of neo-Nazis started marching up the street. And in that moment, it dawned on all of us. Like we aren't risking arrest. Like we are going to get stomped. Like this is like the, the, they just didn't care. Um, and so that's why I'm on the record in a couple places saying that Antifa anti-fascist saved our lives a day, which is true. Um, you know, I don't, as a follower of Jesus, choose uh, some of the tactics they do for confrontation or, you know, it might be an ideological thing, but our purposes were the same, which was to stem this violent tide. And which is why um, I saw them as community protectors um, in that moment. But if they hadn't sort of tried to hold the street themselves, um, clergy would have been trampled. So we, we decided to to retreat back a little bit because we needed to regroup and relocate our own agency in that space as that kind of realization came to us. And so we entered back into the fray after the dispersal order had been given. And uh, we had a safe space at a restaurant uh, near downtown uh, for clergy and faith folks. We, um, so we regrouped, decided we felt called to be out there, that we can shield people who are receiving violence. You know, as, as I'm sure most people have seen, it just turned into a free-for-all melee um, with uh, Nazis attacking protesters and white supremacists attacking protesters. Um, and so after the dispersal order was given and, and the whole area was tear-gassed, 
a, a group, a large group of clergy went into the street to kind of hold the street to, to keep neo-Nazis from coming back, to protect different protesters from the militarized police who were marching down the street and make sure that their energies were focused where we believe they needed to be. And so we just responded and, and then to, to step into the fray and, and protect people who are catching hell uh, physically. So that continued for a bit. And then we and, and one thing I'll never forget is the round of applause we got from different groups anti-fascist, Black Lives Matter community members and clergy just kind of walked in there. Um, and that's not said as a humble brag, but more, I think, as a testament to the fact that our presence mattered to folks, that that moral authority and that commitment to wade into a space where people are angry and hurt and confused mattered that the church mattered and that we had something to say in that space you had mentioned that a lot of you were in full clerical garb and so i'm assuming you mean like robes and the white collars and robes stoles yeah the white collars that's correct i know that at least for me i've primarily been worshiping at churches that are um, a little more informal in the way they're structured and presented so i'm not very used to seeing pastors or ministry leaders in robes, but I imagine um, that helped establish that what you were doing was part of your Christian witness. That's right. So I, I too, I come from a pretty congregational uh, tradition. And so, um, and I grew up in traditions that you don't see that every Sunday at all, but a lot of, you know, pastors have that in the closet. (laughs) And that was actually a very intentional strategic decision um to go out in the full drag so to speak um and whatever kind of moral authority accrues to the collar and and to identify that way it's also a way of presenting a, a different kind of witness prayerfully that transcends the sides that quote unquote the world wants to take so mm-hmm. when you see the full drag the full clerical garb in the street um, with the miters and the um, stoles and the robes, it tells a new different story visually, or that was the hope, that was the strategic decision. And I think we saw that, you know, in this melee that, um, look at that. So, okay. yep, that's a good question for sure. Um, and then, so we, it wasn't, so now that was for an hour and a half going to where there were different tense encounters, holding space, comforting people, ministering, just strategically being available to where violence could break out at any point. Um, We went back to our safe spot and just sat down, not more than three or four minutes when someone ran up uh, and said that two blocks away, a car had hit everyone. And that was the terrorist attack that everyone's familiar with now. And so we just said, clergy, we got to go. And this is where I think our training paid off the most for people, whether they were local or from around the country, about 30 clergy sprinted down from two blocks away. And aside from the street medics, we were the first formal group on the scene. And I haven't really been able to relive it. Um, but in the moment, we were just there with people comforting them, helping clear the street for the medics, especially as the EMTs and the ambulances. Um, the official medics came up, um, but the street medics were there doing work. It was awful. Uh, there was blood and glass everywhere we uh, comforted loved ones we that's where our infrastructure that we had spent weeks preparing 
I was able to get on the phone and get different clergy who were not part of the frontlines groups to get their cars and drive loved ones to the hospital who were just distraught, fainting, in hysterics, to be honest, um, and and to just hold space and be protective and just minister in the moment, praying with people, um, but also doing some real frontlines comforting, like people uh, I was with who were not the most grievously injured but had huge contusions, potentially broken arms. Um, just getting them the resources they need because this was an unprecedented moment for everybody. And that's where I think that no one could have quote unquote prepared for that. But in a sense we did through our intensive simulations, um, through congregate. But yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was terrible. I want to maybe take a step back from that and talk about the moral or mental or spiritual preparation that went into this uh, over the course of your life. Um, I know that you've mentioned you grew up in the church in kind of one Christian tradition, and now you're ordained and ministering in another. And in between, through your work with IJM, through your work with the One Campaign, um, you've been coordinating with uh, ministry leaders from a whole host of different corners of the American church. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about how that has shaped your understanding of the gospel and your understanding of the Christian's call, um, specifically mm-hmm. uh, how it's shaped your understanding of how we're called to relate to the communities around us. Yeah, I think there's an interesting balance to always strike between the pastoral and prophetic, and you don't have to be a pastor and you don't have to be a quote-unquote prophet to strike those balances and do that work. Mm-hmm. My own faith calling, I mean, we're all people in process, so it's been a process. And funny enough, I think it's been a process to owning more than ever and wrestling more than ever with what I believe to be Christian orthodoxy. Christian orthodoxy says that God chose to be born in the body of an unwed teenage mother to an unimportant people in an unimportant part of the world living under occupation and that that person who we know is God in the, in the person of Jesus lived his life disrupting the forces of empire through relationship. Jesus made himself friendly the most, loving the most of those most marginalized and oppressed. And uh, ultimately, as we know, the state executed him. And that's not me querying the text at all. That's Christian orthodoxy. And so I've been really sobered and refined, but also liberated in that space. In terms of my own preparation, I used to be someone who was like, oh, if we get enough people to sign this petition, we'll make poverty history. You know, a little less relationship based, a little less um, uh, distant from the forces that govern the world. And now I'm a person in process. Um, but when this violent ideology said, we are going to dance all over your town, that my perspective has shifted enough to understand for those listening at home, I am a tall, straight white man, um, grew up middle class in the United States of America, but my perspective has shifted enough to understand that for anyone who doesn't look like me or have the privileges afforded me and the comfort levels I do, 
this ideology cannot be ignored because it actively seeks to dehumanize too many of my human siblings, the same human siblings who I absolutely believe and know Jesus would be breaking bread with today. Made in God's And image. so my perspective in showing up on the front lines was to demonstrate, not alone, but to say to demonstrate with my body and my faith that out of my own tradition, Jesus stands with you. Um, there are a lot of people who say and did say to me and to others and still saying online and elsewhere that oh, I should have just ignored them. To me, that's the response of people with the privilege to think they don't have to pay attention. Um, but this ideology physically and spiritually is violence to too many people. So it sounds a little bit like some of what you're saying could almost border on or cross the border into what a lot of people call almost derisively white guilt. Maybe. Yeah. I just, I, I want to encourage people not to feel stuck. No okay. one should feel guilty for being white. That is the stuck place as a white person. But first and foremost, as a Christian, I feel a responsibility and responsibility is not a drag. It's not a duty. It's more a liberating opportunity to use the power and privilege I have to ensure that all of God's children here in our country and elsewhere are afforded the equity and equality uh, and love and affirmation um, that our systems currently do not fully provide them. We are not here to confront individuals. Like people would ask, are you attacking the cops? No, we are here confronting structures of evil. Powers and principalities. Um, powers and principalities, exactly. All right, that was my conversation with Seth Wispelway of Congregate Charlottesville. If you want to hear more from that conversation, stick around. I'll be letting you know how at the end of the podcast. I know it's been a few weeks since the unrest in Charlottesville, and it's been almost two more weeks since that conversation was recorded, but I think it's still worth hearing from someone who was on the scene, and I hope that you appreciated getting a little bit of insight into why someone might get involved in a protest like that. Right at the end of the conversation, we brought up an idea that I think is really important if you're trying to relate to and understand Christians who are really passionate about some kind of social activism. And an idea that might be important to any Christian trying to work out what our relationship is supposed to be to representative government. That's the idea of trying to engage systems, of wrestling with powers and principalities. A lot of times, we can focus so much on taking our own thoughts captive on our personal sanctification, and on the most basic possible evangelism of the people around us, that we end up neglecting the Bible's commands to build better social systems. In the garden, God didn't just call Adam and Eve to live with him and delight in him. He also called them to cultivate the garden, to steward it into health and flourishing. Moses and the prophets didn't just command Israel to smash their idols and worship the true God. 
They also commanded God's people to institute laws that would care for their neighbors and to actively work toward peace and toward flourishing in the communities around them. Paul didn't just call Christians to confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. He also reminded us that we are struggling against the powers and principalities of the world around us, the rules and norms that govern our lives and societies. It's the difference between giving to a charity and working to make our neighbors and our communities more charitable. We're not called to just bestow peace and mercy on the people who we happen to be able to see, who need it at the times when we happen to feel up to it. Jesus called us to be salt to the earth, to be lamps lifted up on stands. Salt seeps into the food you cook and changes the flavor and texture of the whole thing. For Jews following the Old Testament law, koshering salt would render an entire piece of meat clean to eat. Lamps up on stands were the ancient world's version of a modern-day floor lamp. Candles could illuminate the things that were closest to them, but lamps on stands could illuminate everything, everywhere in a room, even the things they never touched directly. One of the biggest obstacles we need to overcome in our Christian lives is understanding how to synthesize these two struggles. The struggle against personal sin, and the struggle for just and merciful powers and principalities. And it's a struggle that requires the whole church. Most Christian traditions and most Christian communities end up emphasizing one more than the other. Those of us who understand the Christian faith as inherently private, inherently personal, inherently concerned with a series of individuals, those of us who understand Jesus exclusively as the personal Savior— sent by a God who only has eyes for individual people. We need the fellowship of people who have a heart for what Jesus' lordship means for whole communities and principalities. We need people who really care about what it means to be emissaries of a greater king. And those of us who view the Christian faith as inherently public— as irreducibly about creating embassies of a kingdom that operates by better, fairer, more merciful, more just laws. We need the fellowship of people who are keenly aware of the way that sin works in our individual hearts and lives. People who understand Jesus not just as their king, but as their father, their master, their brother, and their friend. We can't bear witness to the whole gospel without one another. The things Jesus claims and the things that he's going to do are too big for that. If you're interested in how our private calling as Christians and how our public calling as Christians inform one another, we have some resources on our website that you might be interested in. Visit christiancivics.org resources and check out Light to the World a five-chapter Bible study guide, and check out Body Broken, a book by Pastor Charles Drew. And speaking of Pastor Drew, 
He's joining us this week to lead us in prayer for the city and for our country in the wake of last month's violence in Charlottesville. I'm going to hand things over to him, and then I'll be back with some ideas on how you can do a little more with the ideas that came up in the interview today. Let me read Psalm 130 before we pray together. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray together. Our Father, we cry to you from the depths. The events in Charlottesville trouble us profoundly. We grieve over the violence, the injury, and the senseless death in the streets there. We grieve that racism lingers so many years after the terrible war that ended slavery. We grieve that racism's public expression seems to be on the rise. For many of us, our grief is laced with anger and confusion. We see on TV the stony face of the young man who drove his car into a crowd of protesters, and we are filled alternately with fury that he should do such a thing and perplexity over why he did it. There is a part of us that wants to hurt him as he hurt others. There's another part of us that wonders what it is about our life together as a nation that would foster and even sanction what he did. We wonder, Lord, what we are supposed to do about Charlottesville, especially when we may be confused about the issue that led to the protests in the first place. Should we pull down every statue? Should we pull down any? If so, which ones and why? Should we reflect more deeply on the events? If so, what should guide our reflections? Should we talk about our confusion and anger at church? If so, what should we say and to whom? Thank you, Father, for your anchoring voice speaking to us through the psalmist. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? We are confused, grieved, and justly angry, but we are also complicit. Each of us carries his own particular form of guilt. The racism we decry in others takes its own shape in us. We, too, stereotype people and diminish them. They may be young white men whose politics we fear and despise. They may be women who threaten our job security. We often treat people as obstructions to be blasted through, as enemies to be hurt, as nuisances to be avoided, and as resources to be exploited, but not as your image bearers, to be loved because we love you, even when we do not understand or like them. Our sin runs deeper still. We treat people the way we do because we are afraid. We are like watchmen on the walls at night, peering into the darkness, but we have forgotten what we are searching for. We have forgotten that with you alone 
comes the morning. We have set our hopes elsewhere. Our aspirations have too often become our idols, a certain version of America, the implementation of a certain policy, job security, success, acceptance, pleasure, and freedom have too easily taken first place in our hearts. And because we cannot be sure of those things, we have rushed and manipulated and hurt to secure them. Father, we are a reflection of our nation. In so many practical ways, we have joined our country in forgetting you. Together with our neighbors, we have lost our way. Together with them, we have abandoned our first love and brought upon ourselves as a result the griefs of Charlottesville. Forgive us, Father, by the cross of your Son. By your Spirit, make that forgiveness and the welcome that flows from it so palpable and precious to us that we grow tired of setting our hopes in anyone or anything other than you. Order our politics, Father, more fully around your word and less around our desires and preferences. Order our social hopes more fully around your steadfast love and less around our fears and resentments. Teach us to fear you above all else. Lord Jesus Christ, make your church beautiful, a place of love and honesty and humility and goodness and reconciliation so winsome and attractive that people throughout our beloved country are drawn to you. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. That was Pastor Charles Drew, a member of the Executive Board here at the Center for Christian Civics and a frequent contributor to our blog and our mailing list. Speaking of our mailing list, it went through a bit of a change recently. Starting this month, instead of one big, overly long email every month, we're sending it out in smaller chunks. So each month, we're aiming to send out one email that has a devotional with prayer points, and then another email that has a list of recommended reading, and then one more that has some practical action items you can use to grow in your public discipleship. Pastor Drew wrote this month's devotional email, which went out earlier this week. But it's not too late to sign up and get next week's email, which is going to cover recommended reading and listening. In addition to some of the books and podcasts that our team members and writers have been digesting lately, we're also going to include some recommendations from Pastor Seth Wispelway, some of the books and writings that have helped shape the way he practices his faith. You can sign up for that newsletter at our website. You can go to christiancivics.org slash newsletter. And if you want to learn a little bit more about Pastor Wispelway or hear more from him, we'll be including another excerpt from our interview with him in the next bonus episode of the podcast. These bonus episodes, when we make them, they go out as special thank yous to our supporters to the people who help fund our ministry. So if you want to hear a little bit more about the work Pastor Wispelway did 
helping ministry leaders connect with anti-AIDS work or anti-human trafficking work, then head to our website, christiancivics.org, and make a one-time or a recurring donation. We're hoping to be able to actually hire some full-time staff members by the end of the year, so monthly donations really help us out when we're budgeting for that. But you don't have to become a monthly supporter to get the bonus episodes when they come out. All of your contributions are 100% tax-deductible, and as a new organization, they're vital for making our work possible. So visit our website, christiancivics.org, make a one-time or a monthly contribution, and you'll get the next bonus episode when it goes out in October. All right, that's it for this episode. I want to thank Pastors Wispelway and Drew for being with us. We'll have links in the show notes on our website where you can learn more about Pastor Wispelway and about Congregate Charlottesville. If there are any topics or questions you'd like us to cover in future episodes, head to our website and fill out the comments form. We'd love to hear from you. Our theme music is by Sonic Weapon Fence. We'll be back in about two weeks, probably with an excerpt from one of our classes. And in the meantime, visit us online at christiancivics.org to learn more about our work empowering the church to be lamps on stands across the political spectrum. Mm-hmm.